On this episode of the podcast, we talk about what to eat and what to avoid. I give you tangible lists on my favorite proteins, fats, carbs, and superfoods, and I tell you exactly what to avoid if you want to maintain optimal health. Then I talk about some of the most frequently asked questions about an animal-based style of eating, like, will eating meat give me cancer? Don't I need a bunch of fiber? But what about carbs for energy? And isn't eating meat bad for the environment? There's a lot of value in this. It's a long episode, but it's well worth your while. So listen in. Hello, and welcome to the Average to Athletic Podcast. My name is Graham Tuttle, and I am your host once again as we go on this journey of discovering what it means to achieve our maximum level of physical capacity. And a big part of that is nutrition. And if that doesn't sound too crazy to you, then you probably have been listening to parts one through six of the Nutrition Crash Course. And guess what? We're at part seven. It's been a long journey and a lot more detailed than I would have envisioned at the start, but it's been good. I've uh, used this to really outline and create the bulk of my animal-based athlete book, which I'm very excited about, and I think it's come to fruition. I will have that out and ready soon. But the podcast has been good for me to kind of create some of the, work out some of the rougher edges around these different ideas and thoughts and do a lot of research. So this one is going to be one of your favorites because it's the nuts and bolts, the uh, the meat potatoes, the brass tacks as you would if you would have it, the, the tangible take-home actions for what you need to buy next time you go to the grocery store. And in this episode, we're talking about, so what the heck are you even supposed to eat? You know, what are you supposed to eat? What do you avoid? And we're going to go through the most commonly asked questions. And I might get a little bit feisty on these because when certain things get misrepresented in the uh, modern narrative, it's just not fun for anybody. So we're going to start off with the, the basic stuff so that you can get your groceries list ready when you go to the food store next time. Um, but at this point, we've gone through six fairly detailed uh, adventures into different parts of carbohydrates, fats, different types of, uh, let's say, metabolic disorders and how the food you eat is actually causing most of that. So you might be kind of confused because I've probably just torn down everything in terms of, well, don't eat you know fake fats, don't eat refined sugars, don't eat corn, don't eat wheat, don't eat soy. It's like, well, what are you supposed to eat? So let's cover that now. So before I jump into this, the important thing to keep in mind is that there are no universal rules. Now, what works for me might not necessarily be best for you. And plus, you know, how well you can stick to any given dietary advice is the single biggest factor. Just because I've listed something here doesn't mean you have to eat it. And after everything we've learned in the series so far, my hope for you is that you understand that nutrition is at the root cause of disease and healing. Modern technology and modern marketing can make this seem confusing, but it does not have to be. It really is simple. Just stick to 90% or more of your food choices from meat, fruit, and some vegetables. All of them I'm going to outline, so don't you worry, and you'll be fine. And the following list will help you confidently make decisions that best support your health and performance goals. So we're going to start with the proteins and what the best proteins to eat. And so I've listed these all in order of the most bioavailable nutrient-dense sources of protein to the least. The big thing to note here is that and we've discussed this before, but I spend a lot of time on carbs and on fats is and not as much on protein because protein is a little bit more straightforward. You know, it's important and you have to have it or else you're not going to survive. And good luck going on a low protein diet. It doesn't work very well. Um, but not all proteins are the same. There are, well, 
you know, I'm biased, but animal-based proteins are much more bioavailable, meaning that they have all the amino acids that you need to be able to reconstitute that. And think of amino acids are like the uh, the Legos. If you take a big structure and you break it apart, all of those little Legos, so there's 20 amino acids, those are the the building blocks, so to speak, of building a protein. So every protein you eat gets broken down and then reconstituted. And so not all proteins are created the same. So we'll see that. So the first thing you can start with is ruminant meat. And so that means beef, bison, buffalo, elk, goat, venison, and other wild game. Now, you always want to choose grass finished when possible. And notice, there is a big difference. Animals spend most of, the, most of their life eating grass. But what they finish their life on is really what makes a big difference. And so that, you know, let's say they... Typical, you'll see grass-fed. Well, it's kind of a misnomer because no animal gets fed grain its whole life. They would not survive. So, you know, you'll go to the store and you see this marketing for grass-fed. It's like, well, it has to say 100% grass-fed or grass-fed and finished. That's what makes the big difference. So know that marketing distinction right up front, but you always want to get grass-fed when possible. Now, we've talked about this, the difference between monogastric and ruminant animals. Monogastric animals like um, pigs... And, and poultry, for example, only have one stomach. So the fat that they eat is the fat that they store. And if they're eating a bunch of grains and junk and soy, then they're going to store that. And, and then you're going to eat that. And then you're going to store that. Ruminant animals have multiple stomachs, specifically a rumen. So they process these things a little bit different. So they're able to sit there and chew on it. But, the, you know, and at the end of the day, the fat profile isn't significantly different when you're looking at ruminant versus, you know, sorry, grass-fed versus grain-fed ruminant animals. But for the quality of the animal's life, for the quality of the food, for the quality of what's not in the food, it is definitely worth the price to go with grass-fed and grass-finished. So when you're choosing those, always to go for that. And then choose fattier cuts of meat. You're going to get more nutrients and vitamins. I mean, some people don't like the fat. I used to be that way. I used to not like it. And then I kind of realized that like fat, fat's where all the nutrients are. So my preference is to go with fattier cuts of these meats, but you don't have to. I would take a ribeye over a sirloin any day, but that's just me. And a third consideration here is that bone-in steaks and ground meat provide a higher level of collagen and connective tissue. So if you get the bone-in steak, get to the bone and gnaw off the actual connective tissue, like the, uh, the I guess it would be the tendon. Um, so those provide a lot of the glycine-rich foods that are really important for creating your own strong connective tissue and if you've got these kind of aches and pains and things that are going on in your body uh, your your tendons and your ligaments a lot of times it's because you're not getting enough glycine but moving on number two fish so salmon mackerel herring anchovies sardines and cod are best and so salmon mackerel anchovies sardines and herring make up what are called smash fish s-m-a-s-h and those are generally going to be low in mercury they're going to be high in the omega-3 fatty acids that you want. Uh, those are going to be, and they're low in toxins, and they're all available when you can get them wild-caught in sustainably harvested ways. So the thing with fish is that it's very easy. Our technology can easily outstrip the ocean, which is crazy to think about, but a lot of uh, unsavory, unsavory practices are ruining the oceans, and so a lot of the tuna you get, unfortunately, if you like uh, sushi, you'll cover your ears because you don't hear this, but a lot of the tuna you'll get it's actually coming from very unsafe or unsustainable farming practices. So you really got to watch out for that. So I try to be very careful about knowing where you're getting your food from. But in general, the salmon, mackerel, herring, anchovies, and sardines are almost always good. And if you can get locally sourced fish, that's great. 
it you know if you're a fish person and you don't really like a lot of red meat then i would definitely say it's worth your while to know where your fish are coming from and how they're farming how their fishing practices are best done because when it comes to fish there is a huge difference between wild caught and farm raised you don't want to go farm raised it just doesn't work because they're getting fed antibiotics they're in this tiny little enclosure they're eating each other's poop it's just not good and you know it's causes a lot of pollution based off the uh the localized i uh, can i guess condensed waste that these fish produce but hand in hand with fish mollusks and other seafood are really good as well so oysters are incredibly high in zinc which is hugely important but uh regardless find locally sourced fish that have been sustainably harvested and then fattier fish and the seafood provide more nutrients and vitamins so you're going to see a, a common theme here is even though this is in the protein section protein and fat tend to go hand in hand in terms of the best sources of nutrients so try to optimize for that but you know same thing shrimp and things like that and when you go to the food store and you're looking at fish there is a reason that the wild caught and the farm raised have such a different price point and they look different if it seems too good to be true you're probably getting cheap stuff from china that's been frozen with color added and it's got very unsavory uh, fishing practices and fish is just not that healthy for you so unfortunately you get what you pay for and so you might as well pay for it it's going to be better in the long term Number three, eggs and dairy. Now, this is number three because not everybody responds well to dairy. So things like milk can be a problem for a lot of people. I've realized that as I stopped eating as much of it, you're drinking milk. I don't respond to it as well either. So I kind of stick to cheese. Sometimes Greek yogurt is fine. Uh, so milk, cream, Greek yogurt, and cheese. And then eggs. Eggs are just like super solid and, you know, maybe one day you'll figure it out. But obviously, the better you can get in terms of quality eggs again it's better for your health you're going to notice this theme over and over again so always choose pasture raised eggs that there's much higher nutrient density and locally sourced is best and if you can try to find from a place that lets their uh, chickens go free range that's a very different thing so one common marketing thing is you'll see like oh these eggs are 100 vegetarian fed and they make it seem like chickens are vegetarians chickens are omnivores they walk around they eat insects they eat little critters they're like you know the little beaks are tough so you know, when you see 100% vegetarian fed, that's literally just saying, yeah, we just fed them the cheapest thing. We just fed them a bunch of grain and soy and corn. If they're not explicitly, look at it this way. No one is ever going to go through the expense and the trouble of making a higher quality food and then not let you know about it. So if it's not explicitly out there that, hey, this is wild range, um, you know, free range, uh, pasture raised chicken they're not going to do that and then not tell you about it so if they don't say it explicitly on there then assume it's not um but again the quality of those chickens you're going to notice a much better quality of the yolk and that's where all the uh the vitamins and minerals are but um when it comes to dairy many people don't tolerate dairy so foods like greek yogurt and cheese are lower in lactose because the bacteria have cut down on those but you can also get uh lactase you know milk with lactase in it but again if you can't do milk or cheese your milk you're totally fine the big thing is you're missing some form of a calcium but if you're getting bone broth and things that things like that which we'll talk about later on then you're going to be okay but in general choose full-fed versions from grass-fed organic cows when possible again what you buy is what you get so when you get the full fat understand that that is the natural part where it hasn't been taken away you know and if you're taking the fat out and you're just getting sugar it becomes more like sugar water than actually a, uh, a dense food now notice here um, with mammals milk 
this is the only source where fat and carbs are together in the same food. And so this is kind of pretty unnatural in terms of what you would see in the wild. So this has the unique capacity that in mammals milk, the fat and carbs together is actually created so that you you kind of uh, supersede the normal satiety mechanisms that you would have. So a big thing is that it's pretty easy to overdo this stuff. And so I'm not necessarily recommending you do milk by any, you know, mandatory uh, commandment. But if you're going to do that and you enjoy it, then it's totally fine. But do full fed and it is kind of easy to overdo because it, it does override that satiety mechanism. But on the topic of milk, grass-fed milk is always superior. And then you can choose A2 protein milk. You can definitely do raw milk, which is a little bit of a niche thing. And it's not... The problem is, is you think about raw milk, and it's like, oh, that sounds raw, sounds unsafe. But the reality is, the reason it's illegal for sale across, like, in the United States and mass is because you can't produce it at a mass level with the same exact standard. So you can't, you can't take raw milk and ship it around the country in a consistent way, like you could with pasteurized, which is where they, they heat it and they kind of sterilize it, so to speak. There's an argument to be made that you're losing some of the, the nutrients and vitamins and the, the best, most valuable part of the raw milk. And there's enough people who have seen improvements in their uh, GI tract and their, their overall digestion from having raw milk. Um, but it's not mandatory by any means. And if you want to try it, then go for it. And it's really not unsafe. It does not have, like, it's just a matter of finding a place that does it. And the only reason it's illegal is just because they can't standardize it and ship it around the country, which is, you know, totally fine. But... Moving on, number four of, and there's six on each list, so there's six in each section. Number four is pork and poultry, and so this is like chicken and turkey, stuff like that, birds, basically. And personally, I'm not a fan of poultry because it doesn't have enough fat, unless you get like the wings or, you know, or bone and thigh or something like that, but, you know, I grew up on the boneless, skinless chicken breast, and it just is not very good, and I don't enjoy it, and so I don't want to eat it anymore because I'm a grown-up. Um, but since these are monogastric animals, meaning they have one stomach, the fat that they do have comes from the foods they eat. And this tends to be corn and soy, which I avoid as much as possible. So if you can find well-raised, forage-fed, corn and soy-free pork and poultry, then go for it. If not, yeah, my vote is skip the pork and uh, minimize the poultry unless you get a free range. And again, it is, I've talked to multiple farmers, it is very, very hard to get completely corn and soy-free pork. I actually ordered some, and it was fantastic, but Firebrand Meats, shout out to, uh, to my uh, community-supported agriculture. It's fantastic. It was so good, but they had to go above and beyond to make sure that they didn't feed their, you know, you have to find a replacement, and the pigs don't get fat if you don't feed them corn and soy. So let that be a, a note for you as well if you're trying to not be fat. But more specifically, if you can find that you can you go out of your way to do that but the best you can get is uh forage raised pork and and poultry and that's generally pretty good um, i just wouldn't go out of my way to eat a lot of pork enjoying some bacon and pork chops is good from time to time but you know probably not the best thing to have every day especially if it doesn't say it's doing this stuff because then really what you're getting is basically the same amount of uh, omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids from the corn and the soy that you would be getting from soybean oil and that's not good so um, and then poultry, you get a little bit more range of motion because the pig, the uh, chickens don't have to get as fat, so they can forage, raise, and do that stuff. But again, this stuff is going to be more expensive. And if you can find this stuff, then great. Butcher Box has good chicken, um, decent pork. But you know, your local farmers market is going to be the best option for it. But you know, ask your farmer, see what they feed them, and if they just say it's a typical grain fed, and if it's supplementing, that's one thing, right? That's the best you can really do is forage fed with some supplement. But if it's 
not and they're just typical grain fed then they're just fattening these puppies up and then it's not what you want to be eating but number five protein powders and supplements so the main protein powders are whey and casein whey and casein c-a-s-e-i-n which are byproducts of milk so they dry the milk and they take that stuff and those have a different digestion time so whey is quick digesting casein is slow digesting and you'll see a bunch of protein powders and supplements i'll do another episode on supplements in the, in the near future um and they're supposed to say they got longer digestion time and it's supposed to be fancy. It's all marketing. But there's egg, protein, pea protein, rice, and hemp. So these all kind of work. And while they can help, they're just much less beneficial than protein from whole food sources. Because remember, it's about getting the full amino acid profile and it's about getting the not just the basic nutrients, so not just the macronutrients, but also the micronutrients, the vitamins, the minerals, the hydration, everything else that comes with it. So that's what you want to keep in mind. Protein powders can work if you're an athlete and trying to get out there and get a little bit extra. But, you know, if you're following my dietary advice and getting, you know, a pound or two of meat in a day, you're going to be good on protein. But, you know, it doesn't hurt. And if you want to pad your, hedge your bets, so to speak, then that's definitely good. I would start with whey in that list. Whey and casein are generally good. But if they're not uh, well digested, then you can mess around with pea or hemp. Um, but again, those aren't, you know, sometimes it can be a problem. And then finally... Number six is plant sources of protein. And this is beans, lentils, tempeh, which is uh, fermented tofu, I believe, and edamame, which is uh, soybeans, basically. And while they do provide some protein, it's often hard to get enough without prohibitive volume, meaning you got to eat a lot to get enough protein. And I personally stay as far away from soy, soy products, and soybean oil as possible. Now, of course, getting some soybeans aren't is nowhere near the same thing as getting like soybean oil. So I don't want to like walk around with this. And I also don't want to come off as being super dogmatic. I'm just saying what I do and what I'm recommending. But then you got to remember beans and legumes are high FODMAP food, which is that fermented oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyenols. I remember that from memory. That's pretty good. Uh, that food map, FODMAP foods, and they can lead to gas and bloating and excess. So a lot of people don't do really well in that stuff. And the problem is they don't, Think about it because I think, oh, beans are healthy, right? Beans are healthy. And if you go look on, if you Google, are beans healthy? There is not a doubt in my mind you're going to find like 15 different, you know, healthline.com, Livestrong, beans, legumes, good from fiber. And they're going to tell you that stuff. But the problem is they're, they're coming from a place of like don't eat meat. So the only option you have if you don't eat meat is to be, eat a bunch of grains and legumes. It can work, but, you know, you're going to be gassy. So that's just, that's there. So. Those are the proteins, ruminant meat, fish, eggs and dairy, pork, poultry, protein powders, and then plant sources in that order. Now let's talk about fats, my favorite. I love fats, fat. Um, so this is again listed in order of most bioavailable and energy dense to least. Now, first there are fattier cuts of ruminant meat. So this is ribeyes, T-bones, New York strip steaks, sirloin, cap roasts, make sure the pecan roast, uh, the chuck roast, the brisket, the ribs. Ground meat is a great choice. Like an 80-20 is the best fat to protein ratio. And <laughs> This is a goofy thing about me, but as I'm reading this, like I've had steak every night for like eight months now, like the same thing, the steak every night, and I still get excited. I'm like, oh, ribeye. <laughs> I'm weird. So you, you can officially turn this off if you never listen to me again after learning that, but you know, whatever. So again, one thing to note about the ground meat when it comes to the fat is that a lot of times you think, oh, if fat's good, I want to get more of it. So they get like the 70, 30 or the 55, 45. The problem is, is when you heat fat up, it turns into a liquid. And if you want to be cooking that ground beef forever, then good luck getting a high fat thing. So as much as I'd love to do like a 75 or an 80, like 80, 20 is good. 85, 15 is a little bit better because 
it's just, it gets messy. It takes forever to cook. And it's like, I end up just taking a paper towel and then sopping up some of the fat. So it, it goes a little bit quicker. But, um, so don't feel bad for going with a, like a super lean one or not super, but I wouldn't do 90, 10, but like 85, 15 is good. But again, the fat is good, but know that when fat is warm, it, meaning like the difference between saturated fat, a saturated fat is solid at room temperature versus refined fat, which is like the oils, which is why we don't eat them. Um, but when you get the saturated fat warmed up, it becomes liquid and then you're kind of dealing with that. And so unless you went to ground meat swimming in saturated fat, which is not a problem, but it's just, you know, that's, that's taste profile. So just notice that. So don't beat yourself up if you like the 85 or the 90, 90, 10 life. So then fattier fish. Again, we're talking these smash fish, salmon, herring, anchovies, mackerel, cod, something like that. That's pretty good. Um, and then fish oil, salmon roe, krill oil, and cod liver oil are all good omega-3 supplements. So fish oil and krill oil and cod liver oil are the same thing. They're basically just taking the, the omega-3 fatty acids from the fish and, and condensing it down. Salmon roe is probably the best option because it's natural. You're just taking the fish oil and you're getting the most condensed version with the most nutrients, but you're also not letting it bioaccumulate a lot of mercury because they're baby eggs. Um, it's just got a unique taste. So you got to learn to like the taste. It's getting kind of salty, but... I eat some of that. I'll supplement. So each week I'll have either salmon for dinner, anchovies or salmon roe for like that kind of first meal. So just getting some of that stuff. And we'll talk a little bit about why that's valuable for the calcium as well at some point. But And we might not actually. So I'm just going to mention that. Getting bone-in fish is really good not only for the, the omega-3 fats, which are the anti-inflammatory ones, but also getting the calcium sources from those. And again... These are where you're getting this high glycine food. So there's the glycine and methionine comparison. Methionine is generally high in muscle meats, and glycine is high in connective tissue, bones, like all the kind of the crunchy bits. And if you if the ratio gets off, not unlike the omega-3 to omega-6 ratio, where you, you want that 1 to 1, 1 to 4 ratio, the ratio that gets off, then you stop methylating things like folate, and then it slows down your ability to... Um, actually get the most nutrients and uh, maintain things like your iron balance and stuff like that very well. So get the crunch. We need the crunchy bits. Um, number three, best fats to eat are eggs and dairy. So then you eat the whole egg. Remember, most of the nutrients and vitamins are stored in the yolk. That's that's the the goal. That's the juice right there. That's what you want. And then choose full fat dairy if you tolerate it. Grass fed, organic, pasteurized dairy is always best. And again. You do not have to do the dairy. It's just a helpful way to get calcium. But you can also get it from, uh, you know, different things. You can, uh, like, bone supplements, um, collagen peptides, uh, bone broth, bone in fish. The list goes on. And ground beef as well. So, you know, don't feel like you have to have dairy because a lot of times that can be a problem for people. So, please, by all means, skip that. Number four, animal-based fats. This is butter, tallow, which is rendered beef fat. That's just, like, butter is... You know, the clarified dairy where you just take the top off and the the it the fat emulsifies and separates from the actual milk, so to speak, and then you just take that and you let it cool. Something like that. Um, my limited knowledge of farming. Tallow is just taking beef fat that's hardened, and suet would be specific kidney fat. Both of those are high in stearidonic acid, or stearic acid, I should say, that are really good for actually uh, sparking your fat loss, which is interesting. Ghee, which is clarified butter, which is taking butter and burning off the dairy. So if you're lactose intolerant or you have problems with that, then you can get ghee. You just got a little bit more of a um, unique taste and uh, a little more expensive, but it's very good. And the people in the highfalutin restaurants love it. And then you get lard, which is rendered pork fat. Same thing from tallow. But remember, pork is a 
monogastric animal. Great job. I'm proud of you. So if the pork you're getting is getting a lot of soybean and corn and grain, then the pork fat is all going to be that. So, you know, there was a time where I was, you know, before, when I was just getting started, I was using bacon for everything. I had a whole thing of like, you know, lard and I was using that every time. And then I'm like, started to put a little bit of a little bit of chub around the stomach. I'm like, what am I doing here? I don't like this. And then I looked at it. I'm like, oh, I learned about this stuff. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm just getting a lot of omega-6 fatty acids. And that's not my body doesn't like that. So since then, I've, I've cut the pork out. But but that does not mean it's bad. And it can be a great thing in terms of if you know you're sourcing well for that, then it can be great in terms of like a, people. It's basically what they used to use before they had Crisco and then shortening because they use it in crust and all that stuff. So you know, those are the four, butter, tallow, ghee, and lard, and always choose organic, grass-fed, pasture-raised, and corn or soy-free sources, as always. Number five, plant-based fats, and I know you're thinking, what does that mean? Well, avocados, olives, and coconuts, and their oils are all fine because these are fruit. They are not vegetables or seeds. Now, nuts and seeds, can you can have those in moderation, so like almonds and macadamia nuts and stuff like that, but note that peanuts are not actually nuts. They are legumes. And absolutely no vegetable or seed oils. I'll come back to that on my avoid this list. But it's so important. you got to stay away from that. But remember, avocado, olives, and coconuts are all fruit. And people have been making their oils, so to speak, for millennia by hand. And so you don't need a fancy machine and a bleaching, bleaching process. So people always ask, well, you know, is olive oil okay? Yes, olive oil is fine. Higher in oleic acids are the omega, I think omega-9 Um don't quote me on that. I may have not had that all right off the top of my head, but I'm not going crazy. I'm not saying go use olive oil or avocado oil for everything. It's still best bet is to do tallow or butter, but or coconut oil because remember, avocado and olive oil are still high in the uh, monounsaturated omega fatty acids, and so those are the things we generally want to minimize. But coconuts are saturated fats, and so that's why it's uh, like it's what do you call that solid at room temperature, but those, if you're looking for something to eat and, you know, let's say you're trying to have a salad dressing, that's one of the hardest things when people look at salad dressings is they have a salad and it's like, okay, what do I do for dressing? Because it's like if you're just getting the salad, you're not getting any fat, which means you're not getting the omega, your, sorry, the uh, fat-soluble vitamins A, D, E, and K. So if you need to do a little balsamic vinaigrette, some olive oil, some olive uh, avocado oil, make your own salad dressing, totally fine. Go there. Um, but I don't know why you're eating a salad, but, you know, whatever. Again, don't ask me for diet advice. I'm too, I'm weird. And then number six, fattier cuts of pork and poultry. And remember, poultry doesn't have that much fat, so eat the darker meat when available. But it's really hard to find pasture-raised, forage-fed, corn and soy-free pork. If you can find that, then go for it. But if not, then limit your conventionally raised pork and poultry consumption. It's just not going to be doing that good, doing that much good for you, right? Um, now, let's move to carbohydrates. So we got carbohydrates, we got superfoods, and then what to avoid. I hope you're just enthralled and enjoying this because I'm loving it. And then we're going to get to the juicy topics after this. So, so much fun. Now, listed in order of most bioavailable and energy dense to least, fruits, number one, berries, squash, zucchini, coconut, olives, avocados, apples, bananas, pineapple, etc. Now, notice, not all of these are sweet fruits. There's a difference between sweet and non-sweet fruits. So, squash, zucchini, and avocados are not sweet fruits but when in doubt choose organic locally harvested in-season fruits that are vine ripened i love avocados and they don't grow in north carolina so i still let them get shipped in but outside of that kind of just let the season dictate what it is so when it's in berry season i'm gonna get some berries if it's cantaloupe season i might grab a cantaloupe and there was tomatoes which i don't know if tomato tomatoes actually nightshade so i don't know if they quite 
count, but they've got seeds. So, but the point is, if it's in season, I always maximize that because, in general, what you want to think about is this modern access to 24-7 year-round fruit and vegetable isn't really that accurate because we would have never had that kind of access except for parts of the year. And though I don't think fructose is that bad is the reason plants want us to eat them. It's the only part of the plant that they want you to eat um, because it doesn't want you to eat the seeds. So don't eat the seeds or swallow them or spit them out. But there is there are potential problems with eating too much fructose, so I don't recommend you just having fruit year-round. I mean, you, you can, but only if you're really uh, insulin-sensitive and you're active and you're being an athlete and doing stuff, then you can go for that. But, you know, outside of that, I would make this like a, a seasonal thing, so a few months in the summer, have some watermelon and enjoy it. Um, but past that, remember, organic, locally harvested, in-season fruits. Number two, honey, which could be number one just because it's awesome, but always choose locally sourced honey for your antibody and allergen benefits. So bees actually partially ferment and leave digestive enzymes and honey in the comb, which impacts the digestion and making a much smaller insulin spike than you would get from like, I don't know, sugar or a soda. Um, honey is awesome, and you could probably make the argument that it's an animal-based food because little insects are making it, but that's probably a stretch. Honey is fantastic, and the darker honey you can get, the better. Um, but it's something that you can pretty much have year-round. So if you need a carb source in year-round or you want something sweet in your tea or whatever it is, go honey. And always locally sourced honey. And yes, it's more expensive. That's okay. Support your local honeybees. It's a big deal. Number three, fermented foods. So kimchi, sauerkraut, pickles, probiotic yogurts, kefir, etc. etc. Uh, the fermenting process reduces or eliminates natural plant toxins. And this really provides a good source of di- bad digestive bacterial support. Um, and you'll, you'll notice that cultures historically that have a relationship with some type of vegetable or plant have always done some form of cooking. So boiling, sprouting, and fermenting are, are generally pretty common. Um, but there's a lot of benefit for this stuff as well. And definitely, even though it's a different taste profile, it's very much worth it. Number four, tubers. And so this is things that are roots in the ground. Potatoes, sweet potatoes, carrots, turnips, and radishes. I prefer to pressure cook these and remove the peeling because, you know, it just makes it more, uh, I guess, it, it breaks down some of the oxalates and some of the uh, plant toxins in there. Um, but you don't have to do that. But always, when in doubt, choose organic, locally harvested, in-season tubers when possible. And those are one of the few things that I think are available in the winter, if I'm not mistaken, uh, throughout the year. But if you were to look ancestrally speaking, the foods that we would have had access to would have been obviously animal foods, uh, some honey, depending on the location, some fruit, depending on the location, fish, and uh, some fermented fruit, which are really taking things like, you know, fermenting food foods takes the time space out of it. So you can have cabbage and then ferment it for a few months or sauerkraut or cucumbers and turn them into pickles, something like that. Like it, it, change, it allows you to stretch out the foods you have access to. But then tubers would have been kind of, they grow on the ground. They're a little more accessible year-round. So that's, those are really follow the things that were available to us at that point. Number five, vegetables. So broccoli, green beans, mushrooms, cauliflower, leaf greens, etc. So always choose organic, locally harvested, in-season vegetables when possible. And because you're choosing it, it is possible. Some vegetables can cause digestive problems, bloating and gas. And, you know... The way I look at it is if you're getting your nutrients from meat, organs, and connective tissue and things like that, you don't need these. But if you like them, by all means, knock yourself out. You're going to have a great day. One caveat is if you have a lower thyroid, if you're hypothyroid, then 
Generally, brassica cruciferous vegetables aren't going to be the best because they have those isocyanides, they have those goitrogens which compete with the upregulation and uptake of iodine. So, an example is an isothiocyanate. But, you know, don't worry about that stuff. In general, I just like people to know that all plants exist on a toxicity spectrum and it's not always good to go for everybody. So, if you have digestive problems, bloating, and gas, maybe look at the veggies. But, regardless, it can still be a totally fine source of carbohydrates and water. And that's one of the best things, too, because if you are eating and you're not drinking enough water, you're probably missing out on some stuff. So, number six, grains. Specifically speaking, white rice is probably the, the best one to go here. You can get away with oatmeal. The biggest problem with oatmeal is that almost every single oatmeal you're going to find, unless it's a specific brand that's also organic, has been sprayed with glyphosate. I personally avoid grains. While white rice is fine because it's pressure cooked, it's probably the most absorbable, which is ironic, right? You think about, you know, what are the healthiest versions of grains in rice? It's like, well, brown rice or black rice or wild rice. It's like, well, actually, that's only quote-unquote healthy because it's harder to digest. And the fact that it's hard to digest means it's hard to digest. And if we're getting food, we want our food to be as easy to digest as possible. And some of these other grains easily cause inflammation in the gut. So remember the big four to avoid are corn, wheat, soy, and processed sugars. All of those are grains. Um, so those are things you kind of want to stay away from. But if you need one, especially as an athlete, you need some stuff, go with white rice just because it's the simplest and easiest to digest and doesn't have a lot of the husk or things like that on it. And, of course, green, cream of rice is like a very quick substitute if you need something that's like super digestible. But you know, at that point, you're trying to optimize your overall nutrition, and that's a little bit more of a nuanced perspective. But, again, if you're going with oatmeal, make sure you do your research and find sure, make sure that it's not sprayed with glyphosate because glyphosate is Roundup, and Roundup is not good for you, so don't eat that. Now, let's talk superfoods. These are the foods that don't technically fill a macro but are incredibly nutrient-dense. And you're going to guess what my first one is. Drumroll, organ meat, yay, liver, kidney, heart, tongue, thymus, spleen, brain, and sweetbreads, which I think, I forget what their sweetbreads are, or I don't know if it's thymus, whatever, I, I'll figure that out. Um, but organs from animals might seem gross, they might, might not, but they are literally irreplaceable for optimal health. Liver and kidney are hands down the most nutrient-dense foods available. Vitamin B12, vitamin A, riboflavin, folate, iron, copper, choline. Literally, it's everything is in there. It's insane. I eat one to two ounces of these daily. And if you're not ready to take the plunge, you can still order desiccated, which is just dried out organ supplements. My recommended brand is Heart and Soil. Got to support my boy Paul Saladino over there crushing it out there. But the thing you got to remember with this stuff is that Though we think about this as like, oh, you know, I, actually, I'll come back to this. So I won't spend too much time on this. But what we think about it as like, are you going to eat organs? Who eat organs? It's so weird. Never before in the history of humanity would we have ever killed an animal and said, yeah, I don't like liver. It would have been like, thank God we have liver in this thing. It's so nutrient dense. So, you know, it's just, it's not that organs are weird. It's that our perspective is weird, which if you can get your head around that is a whole different thing. Number two, salmon roe, which is wild-caught fish eggs, super high in omega-3 fatty acids. The eggs have the highest density of omega-3s with the least heavy metal buildup. And eating the whole fish, or you can also do this, eating the whole fish and smaller fish, so sardines and anchovies, is great for calcium. But sometimes it's hard to get those from a sustainably sourced location. Number three, collagen and connective tissue. So bone and meats, whole fish, bone broths, egg whites, and spirulina, which is, I think, a strain of algae that you can get, uh, allows you to get some of these uh, the omega-3 parts. 
These are hugely important for like the collagen connective tissue. I can't overstate this enough. This is hugely important for repairing your skin, your ligaments, your bones, and your connective tissue. It's like having that kind of healthy cheeks that look good and your skin is young and vibrant and all that stuff you, you want. Guess what? You got to get this stuff. And it's you can get some benefit from a collagen peptide supplement, but most of that just gets broken down in the gut and it's kind of up to it remains to be seen how healthy your gut is in terms of how well you can actually absorb it. But um, you gotta also remember that it's not just as simple as getting those collagen peptides because you have to have zinc, you have to have copper, you have to have vitamin C. They're all required for collagen synthesis and production. And if you're not healing or recovering from nagging joints, pains, and injuries, or something like that, it's bothering you, or your your skin, your hair, your nails aren't doing well, then it's probably poor nutrition almost entirely. Now, the beautiful thing is, guess what has a lot of zinc and copper and vitamin C? Liver! Also oysters, but you know either one of those are good. But you'll notice that it's not just as simple as taking a supplement because you have to have a full package. And we'll talk a little bit about vitamin C, but in general, just to make sure it doesn't get missed, vitamin C gets touted as this like super cure and heal healing thing to keep you impervious from getting sick. But the reality is that if you don't get a lot of sugar, you don't need a lot of vitamin C. And there's a reason that our ancestors lost it. We used to be able to make vitamin C endogenously, and now we've lost that. Because we don't really need it unless we eat a lot of sugar, which we do now, which is crazy. And number four, bone marrow. So the tissue in the long bones of larger animals is kind of as rich in stem cells, it's rich in great source of fat and collagen and other key nutrients. So definitely an interesting palate, uh, but it's basically like butter. You put that in the oven, you broil it at 400 for like 20 minutes, and you scrape it out on something. And you get some locally made sourdough or something like that. Oh, my gosh, some salt. Oh, good stuff right there. It's real eating. Now, let's get to the other side of this equation. What foods to avoid? And now this is listed in most problematic order of most problematic and toxic. Now, number one, which if you can't guess by now, I don't know what you've been listening to, but it is indeed vegetable and seed oil. So that is soybean, canola, sunflower, vegetable, peanut, rapeseed, which is a horrible name for a seed, and then corn. All, like, for example, there's like 20 or 30 of them, but these are all high in polyunsaturated omega-6 fatty acids. These omega-6s are essential, of course, but our consumption of them has skyrocketed. So the vegetable and seed oils are literally, literally horrible for you. So watch out for foods cooked in these oils like chips, fried foods, nuts, seeds, and others. Choose butter, ghee, tallow instead. Olive oil, avocado oil, and coconut oil are acceptable, but, you know, they don't really cook well at high heats. Coconut oil is a little bit better, but remember, these are fruits, not vegetables. Now, a little story for you. So I was out with a buddy of mine, and we were going out to go hiking somewhere, and we stopped at a steakhouse because he also is eating the, the good animals uh, with me, and we went to this, like, Texas Roadhouse or something because it's hard to find this stuff when you're traveling. And so I asked for a steak, and I was like, you know, can you... I might have one. I don't know. I just tell people I have a uh, seed oil allergy because when I eat stuff with seed oils, I feel horrible. So whatever the criteria for that are. So, you know, as I said, can you make sure it's cooked in butter? He's oh yeah, yeah it's not that not a problem. He's like, well, actually, let me go check. And he goes and he comes back and he has got no less than a gallon container of soybean oil. He's like, oh, this is what they use. Is that okay? I'm like, no, that's not okay. I would die if you fed me that. And I, I wouldn't die, but you know. He ended up getting it cooked in butter. But the point is that even if you're going out and you're ordering a steak and it's supposed to be healthy, understand that most places always choose the cheapest way out. So if you were not careful about what you're asking for, and almost every place should have butter, they're going to cook it in the cheapest thing. So really make sure you're getting the highest quality you can. And 
always ask. Always be a pain in the ass. It's, it's really valuable. But number two, transaturated fats. So vegetable shortening, margarine, hydrogenated oils, bakery products, and icings. Now, these are used as a substitute for saturated fats to make food more shelf-stable. Avoid these like the plague. They are not safe for human consumption. And the most frustrating part of this whole thing is they're completely not necessary. I was at a buddy's house and we were making brownies because, you know, we, we do that. We have brownies and we cuddle on the couch and watch sports. But he, he was making the brownies and the recipe called for, it was like, you know, brownies, a little bit of water and vegetable oil. I was like, why would they call for half a thing of vegetable oil when you can make it with butter? It was, it blew my mind. But you got to be careful. These things are completely unnecessary. You don't need hydrogenated oils and whipped cream. I just made it myself this last weekend. You need whipping cream, sugar, and vanilla. Boom, whip that up. It's done. Like, and it's crazy is that these things, this is why I never eat like conventional desserts. You go to a place and say, oh, I just got the, the cookies. It's like, what's well, just a cookie? I'm like, no, no, this stuff is in, like literally going to kill you. But you can make the stuff with minimal ingredients and it tastes just as good, if not better. And so that's the thing is like, I'm not against desserts and sugar. I'm just like, I only eat stuff that's homemade and made with love. I love my body, and I don't want to put stuff that wasn't made with love in it. Next, number three, the big four. The corn, soy, wheat, as in bread, and then processed sugars. These are problematic in the huge quantities we consume now, and they are not ancestrally consistent foods that basically were introduced for the last few thousand years. Now, I'm not saying you can't have corn or soy or wheat or sugar ever again, but notice that in America, the way we deal with this stuff is problem. Almost all of the stuff is laden with pesticides, it's genetically modified, or it's processed to the point of being highly toxic and problematic for humans, especially people that have gluten sensitivity. And the reality is that most people, probably most of people, have some type of gluten sensitivity. Now, this is also the strain of what we're doing. We always go for cheap things. And the issue with genetically modified organisms isn't necessarily the genetically modified aspect, but it's that it's Roundup ready so that we can spray tons of Roundup on it and not have a problem. So you're basically getting a lot more pesticide burden with the food. So, you know, additionally, these foods have little to no value and you do not need them. And as a personal note, I will say that I used to be in that category of like, oh, I don't have any problems with food. I'm totally an iron tank. I can eat whatever it is until I stopped eating them. And then I realized like, oh, actually, I do have a problem with this stuff. And my brain is not functioning well without this stuff. So that's what you really want to think about is like, you know, anything for depression, anxiety, ADHD, uh, short memory, whatever it is, like, you know, being scatterbrained. A lot of this goes to the inflammation from the food you eat. And a lot of that comes from the big four, corn, soy, wheat, and processed sugars. And you add five in there for the vegetable and seed oils. But Lest I digress, we'll move forward. Number four, plant-based meats or alternative meats. I can't. <laughs> These are the worst. They might be the worst thing we've ever made. I mean, like right up there with hydrogenated oils. But Impossible Burgers, Beyond Meat, Chicken, you know, the C-H-I-C-K apostrophe in because it's like chicken, but chicken, you know. These alternatives, quote-unquote, are created in a lab with a long list of ingredients that include soy, vegetable oil, sugars, and other binders. They literally took... My list of the top five worst offenders and then made a patty to shove in your face. It's like, we hate you so much. We're going to give you this thing that will literally kill you. And contrary to popular marketing, these are not better for the environment. No one ever takes into account the fact that like, when you go and mass market and monocrop the soy to make this stuff, guess what happens? You're cutting down rainforest. And we'll talk about this in a minute. And don't get me all feisty on this because I'll get angry. But... Like, it's, they're not better for the environment. And the only way to offset the environmental harm of a 
alternative burger, a plant-based burger, is to eat a regeneratively farmed burger. It's crazy. But regeneratively, regeneratively farmed means that it's a process where the animals like are rotated around the crops and they eat grass and actually are 100% grass fed and finished and actually put carbon back in the soil and it's part of how we actually survive as a you know as a people on this earth but it just it ooh these plant based meats and yeah, okay this is a little bit different from the quote unquote veggie burger so like if you look like a black bean burger or something like that like that's a different thing but this whole modern modern, modern thing where like plant based meats it's like eh. You know, and it's also if you are like ethically, if you don't want to eat meat, that's like saying I don't want to kill people because killing people is bad. But I'm going to shoot this dummy in the face. I'm going to get all the same exact sensation without killing people. It's kind of like, it's kind of messed up if you think about it. But like, is if that's your if that's your argument, then they're totally fine with me. But it's kind of weird that you're going to use that and then go and like have the thing. It's like eh, I don't know. Um, but number five, processed meats. So these are things to avoid. So like salami, pepperoni, uh, conventional bacon, conventional ham, sandwich meats, or cold cuts, which I think is a funny way of saying it. But uh, hot dogs and chicken nuggets, especially those chicken nuggets that are like reconstituted, you know, junk. I don't know, like white fluff that's put into a, like a breading. Ugh. But there's high amounts of nitrates and nitrites. Food additives and, poo and poor quality meat make these problematic. And note, and in a less processed form, many of these are totally fine to consume. And a note on the nitrates and nitrites. Plants actually have a significantly higher amount of nitrates and nitrites than animals. Like, they actually don't let babies eat spinach because of the amount of nitrites in it. So, you know, it's not as simple. And I'm not actually convinced that the nitrates are the problem. But at some point, it's a low-quality food. It's generally eaten. Like, no one eats a hot dog plain. They eat it on a bun that's got some sugar in it. They eat it with, like, you know, like other stuff in there, right? And so the french fries and things like that. So it's really hard to tell the stuff in isolation is actually... Know what the problem is, but the food additives and the and the preservatives and things like that, and it's really just poor quality meat. So, I'm not a huge fan of processed meats. I'm not necessarily saying it's that bad, but again, it all comes back to the sourcing. But more often than not, the bigger problem is that these foods are cheap renditions of smashed together leftovers. Literally, like for example, chicken nuggets are basically chicken pulp wrapped in breading, and it's very different than actual strips of chicken meat. This is the same with sausages and hot dogs. So, chicken nuggets versus chicken strips, big difference. You know, and so just keep that in mind. Sausages or bratwurst, things like that, are a very different thing than like a hot dog, which is interesting. I don't. It's it's an interesting thing. Um, and at least with some of the bratwurst and the the sausages, you're getting uh, you're getting the casing of the intestine. You're getting a lot of different parts of the animal, so it's actually got higher glycine. So there's a lot of redeeming quality there. Hot dogs? Mm, I'm not saying no. I'm just the jury's still out. I'm not, no, you know, it's just there's better things. Let's just say that. Now, number six is, and again, so I went from opposite. So this is the uh, the least of the worst, I guess I should say. A high FODMAP foods and toxic vegetables. So this is where you think I'm crazy, right? Legumes, grains, nightshades, which are like the tomatoes and peppers and things like that, eggplants, and then some cruciferous vegetables. Now, this is highly individual, but it's just important to note that many people have trouble digesting plants. For example, those with thyroid issues, again, like I said this earlier, will want to avoid the brassica cruciferous vegetables. Excess grains in the forms of legumes, wheat, seeds, and nuts can cause digestive issues, emotional, mental dysfunction, and poor tooth and bone health and inflammation. And if you listen to part six, we talked all about why that happens from the vagal nerve stimulation and the problems that happen when the gut creates, it has inflammation. Now, remember, peanuts are not actually nuts. They are legumes. I feel like, I feel like that's one of those things to say. Remember, peanuts are not actually nuts. 
And it's uh, use almond or almond butter instead. And there's an interesting topic on this. I don't have a great answer for it, but you know, everyone talks about like, well, this is why we can't shield our children because the peanuts. We're getting a peanut allergy. I'm like, I don't know. Maybe the fact that everyone's getting rapid peanut allergy means it's probably not the best thing for us to eat. It's like people can people go out and gripe about the fact that like we've and there's a lot of truth to this. We've coddled our children and now they no longer can handle any type of antibacterial dirt and they can't handle insults and things like that. And part of that's true. But they use peanuts as like we took peanuts out of the school and now look what it is. Everyone's taking everyone's going to die of a peanut. Maybe that's the case. But at the same time, we didn't like evolve with peanuts. It wasn't like peanuts were around ten thousand years. Maybe I don't know ten thousand, but it wasn't like peanuts were around a billion years ago. And we're walking around having peanuts. There was no peanut farmers, and so peanuts. It's like no one's allergic to beef. I mean, maybe some people are. I don't know, but like very, very, very like point zero 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 fractions of percentages. But peanuts. It's like I don't know why people get so defensive about peanuts. Like peanut butter. Probably not going to be the best thing for you. It's high in omega-6 fatty acids. It's generally made with hydrogenated oils. If we stop eating peanut butter, it'd be totally fine. And this is from a peanut butter and jelly lover. There's nothing better than peanut butter jelly, maybe peanut butter banana, peanut butter and honey. I love it. But if you have the option, just choose some almonds, almond butter. It's a step up. You know, not my favorite, but, you know, definitely an option. So we don't need to cry about the peanuts. All right. So that's the list of what to eat and what to avoid. And now let's handle the other hot topic of some frequently asked questions, some things that might be popping up for you and thinking, hmm, this is a question I have. I wonder if it's frequently asked. And so without further ado, let's jump into them. So the first thing is everyone always does the same thing. Like, you want me to eat organs? And they look at me like I'm crazy. And it's like, I know this one is a tough one to swallow. And that pun is intended. Organs, like, where do you even buy them? Like, you know, I just so you know that I'm crazy, I did not grow up eating any of these things. And the furthest I ever strayed into the quote-unquote crunchy bits was bone-in meats. <laughs> and even then, I used to be like, I don't want to eat if it's got a bone in. I just like eating with a spoon. Like, I was such a lazy little... I don't know. I'm, I've grown a lot, let's just say that. But just because something isn't part of your normal cuisine or culture, it doesn't mean it doesn't have value. And the simple fact is that animal organs are the most nutrient-dense foods available, hands down. Hands down. You will not find another food that packs the vitamins, minerals, and bioavailability, gram for gram, as liver, kidney, heart, or spleen. But I'm sure that logical approach isn't enough to sway your taste buds right now. And we can tackle it from a different angle. And it might not work, but we'll see. The Chinese medicine philosophy, which has been around for thousands and thousands of years, puts it this way. For healthy muscles, you eat muscles. For healthy organs, you eat organs. And for healthy skin, bones, and connective tissue, you want to eat skin, bones, and connective tissue. It's simple, but consider this. More often than not, we have big muscles while our organs and joints and skin are what fail us. Perhaps it's a coincidence, but I think that the difference is the food we eat is quite telling. When we avoid foods that are rich in glycine, we talked about that before, it's amino acid that's crucial for protein and connective tissue development, like organs, bone broths, connective tissues, and collagen, we end up not getting the nutrition that our bodies need to thrive, to thrive and rebuild. And one quick side on this, bone broths are super easy to make. You get like one or two knuckle bones, put it in a crock pot with covered up with water, and you cook it for three days. Then you drain it and you're done. Like it's so simple. Put some salt in there. Mm. So you can do this. If I can do it, you can do it. I am literally the least skilled chef I know, but I can do it. So you can do it. And you might be thinking about this whole like nutrient density thing, you know, but isn't that what plants are for? Well, kind of. So while we can get some nutrients from plant foods, the reality is that most of the vitamins and minerals aren't natively available for animals. Like you can think of it like the difference between Windows and Apple. Team Apple, 100%. Uh, 
not to pick sides, but they both have the same, they both have software ecosystems that do kind of similar things, but Apple programs don't run smoothly on Windows computers and vice versa. They aren't designed with the other system's hardware in mind. And the same thing happens with plant nutrients and animal bodies. Again, we've evolved some capacity to convert plant variations of vitamins and minerals for our use, but the efficiency is pretty poor. Go look at the omega-3 conversion of alpha-linolenic acid to ALA, which is the plant version of omega-3s, to EPA, the uh, epihexachoic, epipentachoic acid. I probably just made myself sound dumb there. So ignore that one, just EPA or DHA, which is the animal version. And as much as you want to go and say, I got my flax seeds, I got high in omega-3s, that ALA is not doing you much good because it's only like a 10 to 15% uh, conversion rate to the actual usable EPA and DHA, which is what you have to have to be able to use that for your brain. Uh, another example is vitamin A conversion of carotenoids, which are uh, beta carotene and carrots and stuff like that, which is the plant version to retinols or retinolic acid, which is the animal version. Now notice... They're not that you can't do this. It's just not the same. And so if you're getting a bunch of ALA, alpha-linolenic acid, or carotenoids, you're getting some of it, but it's just not what you think you are. And so getting the quote-unquote DRI, the dietary, rec dietary recommended intakes, whatever that stands for, um, if you're getting that, you might not actually be eating enough. So that's what you want to think about. And of course, you don't have to eat organs to achieve this. But if you really care, really, like really care in your deep down little heart of hearts, if you really care about maximizing your body's health and capacity, it's well worth your while. You can pick up some organs from a local butcher or a farmer's market, and there is an ever-expanding availability online. And we spoke on earlier, the point of eating is to get required nutrients into your body. The single best way to do that is to use animal organs as your quote-unquote multivitamin. And if you're still not able to get over the hump mentally, check out desiccated organ supplements. They're dried out organs that they put in capsules. Well, more on that eventually in the supplement thing, but it, it's the same thing. It's just dried up and you put it in a pill and then you swallow it and there you go. No one's the wiser. Number two, but don't you need fiber? And this is the primary concern I hear that's next after the organs. They get over the organs. Like, you eat organs? It's like, well, don't you need fiber? Where do you get your fiber, bro? <laughs> do you even poop, bro? <laughs> it's like, that's personal. Um, but this is the primary concern I hear when discussing an animal-based eating approach. So after all, fiber has been the poster child of health and satiety and regular bowel movements for decades now. And the reasoning for this comes down to three main points. First, you're avoiding illness, which is mainly diverticulitis. Uh, you're supporting your gut microbiome, and it's, it keeps you regular. But before I touch on these topics, I'm not saying that fiber is inherently bad or that it's a problem. So if you like your Metamucil in your morning drink, then go right ahead. But it's important to know that fiber doesn't come without downsides. Now... Please note that I understand whenever you're talking about the negatives of something that everybody loves, it's really easy to sound conspiratorial. And I'm not trying to sound conspiratorial. I'm just trying to present some facts here. But first, let's talk on presenting illness, preventing illness. So fiber by its very nature is insoluble, meaning that we can't actually use it. Now, there are some forms of soluble fibers, but those are like gels. And that really refers to the our bacteria that live in our guts' ability to digest it, not ours. We cannot use it. Now... The original recommendation for increasing fiber was based on observational studies showing that the rates of metabolic disease were increasingly low, or sorry, the rates of metabolic disease were increasing amongst people who ate a low fiber diet. Now, you got to think about the context of this. In the 1900s, the mainstream production of cereal, grains, and corn was fueling the majority of the Western diet. Now, notice cereal, grains, and corns, this is before, you know, fiber and metamucil and flaxseed and all that stuff. It was very low fiber. It was these grains that were all carbohydrates stripped of the fiber. And so guess what? Obesity and metabolic disease were on the rise, and we needed a solution. Then 
Lo and behold, enter fiber enthusiast Dennis Burkett, who he basically went to African tribes and studied their poop. And he looked at these people and said, they eat a lot of poop. Or, sorry, <laughs> they eat a lot of fiber. And so the, really the problem is that he didn't realize they were spitting out most of the fiber. But he was like, well, they eat a lot of fiber and they have a low incidence of disease. It must be the fiber. So guess what? He comes back and says it's fiber. And then it gets taken up just like don't squat with me. He's past your toes. And just so you know that it's not that crazy because you're like, well, how could something so you know central be misconfused for decades? People, you probably grew up with your parents not squatting with their knees past the toes because your knees are going to blow up. And guess what? That's not right. So it's very possible. It's more likely that something that's not true gets taken off as, uh, as, as gospel. And the fiber thing basically took that same path. And, you know, of course, of course, this uh, Dennis Burkett couldn't have concluded that it would be their healthy lifestyle, the fact that they got vitamin D, maybe they're physically active, maybe they had a good community, maybe they were, you know, happy and intrinsically uh, felt valued, maybe they had an animal-based diet. No, it couldn't be that, it had to be the fiber. But, with money to be made by large monocropping food conglomerates, the fiber became the main solution to the problem. And while it does help with satiety, like it does fill you up, it's basically like shoving dirt in your face, and it does provide some fuel for gut bacteria, which we talked about in the past, uh, in part six, about why that's important. And it does give substance to bowel movements, makes them big. It doesn't come without a cost. At best, it's a symptom treatment for poor dietary choices, and at worst, it's actually causing more issues for your digestion. Fiber isn't a no-cost passenger in your GI tract, and the body actually loses valuable minerals like magnesium in an effort to move fiber through your body. Like It takes effort for your body to say, we don't want this, we want to push it through. So it's not like this just kind of, people think about like it's a, um, a pipe cleaner, so to speak. You shove that in there and just pushes all the stuff out. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm cleansing myself. And it's like, it doesn't work like that. You just kind of put a bunch of junk in your body that you can't really use. So the, you know, the thing is that the bacteria that produce it or that digest it produce like gas and a lot of gas and bloating, which is why you get bloating when you eat a lot of these FODMAP foods, which are higher in fiber as well, if you'll notice. And... The insoluble fibers, it, like it's just simply a hard substance to pass through. It's kind of like bark; it just kind of scratches along. It's not, it's not good for you. Um, and as noted earlier, the body can use amino acids and ketones as fuel for the gut bacteria. So you don't need fiber, and there is no actual evidence to support that fiber is directly related to decreasing rates of diverticulitis. Which diverticulosis is when you have your pal- your intestines they get kind of like pouches, so like they weaken spaces and things just push out, so they kind of like evulsions and they bulge. I guess, and then diverticulitis when they get infected. It's not pretty. Um, but, you know, the fiber used to think high fiber is going to help you uh, stop that. But there's actually no evidence to support that. But doesn't it at least help you poop? Well, only if you like big bowel movements. <laughs> and studies consistently show that there's either, either mixed or negative results in fiber's ability to decrease constipation in IBS Crohn's. In fact, the only thing that's proven to eliminate these issues is removing all fiber. Crazy. You can go look it up. Fiber, taking a zero-fiber diet actually alleviates constipation 100% of the time. It's crazy. But you would never think about it, right? Just because of the marketing of the way fiber is. Think of it this way. Fiber is not food. We cannot digest it. So if it wasn't part of an edible food like a fruit, why would we have wasted time eating it? Like, when's the last time you walked outside and ate bark? Like, that's about what it is. And we just, I'm going to have some bark. You know, that'll be good. No, we wouldn't have wasted time and energy doing that. So, like this idea that I got to go get fiber to clean me out. It's like, no, no. Fiber maybe is part of some of the foods. And you also got to think the foods were just not very nutrient dense and available. It, it, it kind of doesn't hold up. 
And of course, this is just a brief overview. Fiber can be helpful if you still want to continue eating junk food every day on the typical Western diet. But if you actually make the changes to a nutrient-dense whole food pattern of eating, you don't need it. You might poop less often, and that's simply because you've stopped eating a bunch of bulky food and bulky junk that your body can't digest. Your body is great at recycling things, so anytime you have a large bowel movement, you've eaten a bunch of stuff that's just passing through. And I think that's one of those things that people spend decades of their life having these big poops after eating a bunch of bread and stuff, and they're like, oh, yes, it's the way it should feel. It's like, actually... Not really. Like, uh, you know, putting dogs on a raw food. I'm watching uh, on my little baby's right this week, and he's on a raw food diet, and I will be moving my dogs over, just so you know. But, you know, my dogs have these big poops because they're eating a bunch of you know, dog food, and then riots are like little tiny dainty things that are just like, you know, small. But he's eating less food. He's a big boy. He's eating less food. It's just all food he can digest and use. So, you know, the argument is that poop is really stuff that you're not using. So... Don't glorify having large bowel movements. It's not really what you think it is. Now, number three, and there are, I think I've got six of these frequently asked questions. I'll get feisty on four and five, I promise. Uh, but don't I need carbs for energy? If It's funny because I talked to like some you know, desk jockey who's an adult and said in her job, I'm like, but what about my carbs? Wouldn't you get my carbs? And I'm like, what? <laughs> you don't deserve those yet. Um, if you're an athlete, carbs can be very useful around your training. If you're sitting at a desk all day, then you don't need them. Like the issue is that if you've eaten a high or moderate high carb meal every four to six hours for the last few decades of your life, your body has gotten used to it. And it might take a few days or weeks to become quote unquote fat adapted, which means that you're good at using your body's endogenous fat stores or fat in your diet for fuel. But once you've made that transition, carbs become optional. Now, does that mean you can't have carbs anymore? Of course not. Of course not. You listened to the carb podcast, didn't you? Didn't you? Didn't you? It just means that you're best going. You're going to be best served by eating your carbs intentionally around when you're actually active. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with a high carb diet either. And if you remember, I think it was episode four where I talk about the difference between high carb and high fat and mixed diets, kind of how you do both. But if you're eating a hard high carb diet, your body's going to be functioning pretty well, right? The problem is only that it gets hard to get enough fat for the fat soluble vitamins if you're doing a high carb diet. In general, the mixed diet, the high-fat, you want high-carb, high-protein, or high-fat, high-protein. Those work really well. The mixed diet is where you kind of run into problems, especially if you're overeating. If you're under, if you're eating a regular calorie, you're totally fine. But it's kind of hard to manage that uh, in our modern-day uh, scenario. So the main point is that your body is incredibly resilient and can function off of ketones and stored fat in times of low calories and low carbs. And historically speaking, we would have experienced periods of fasting fairly frequently, and our ancestors who survived would have been able to thrive in these conditions. Besides, in most places in the world, carbs are available seasonally at best, so humans would have had to function without these constantly. The shakiness, the fatigue, the growling stomach you feel after not eating for six hours, it's not actually hunger. It's like it's it's likely dehydration, blood... Uh, it's likely dehydration, low blood sugar, and or gastric emptying. It's simply the feeling when your stomach is empty. And it's like people go, from a survival standpoint, people are like, oh, stomach's empty, we've got to eat again. It's like, okay, maybe, but if we're not starving and we have food in the pantry, we don't have to worry about that. So it's not good to be constantly fed. And this could be revolutionary for you if you've made it this far. Think of it this way. If you've got five pounds of fat on your body, like extra, you know, fat sitting on, like just could be like even you know on your skin, wherever it is. If you've got five pounds of fat, you have 17,500 calories sitting there waiting to be used. That's your savings account. Like, think about that that way. Like every pound of fat you have on your body is 3,500 calories just waiting there in storage. 
And now, the funny is, I'm starving. I'm so hungry. I'm so hungry. It's like, no, you're not. You get like, you know, they, you might burn a thousand calories. You've got like easily 15 days. You get over two weeks worth of calories right there, even if you don't eat. You're going to be fine. You're not going to starve. I promise. And another way to look at this is that there are essential amino acids and there are essential fatty acids, but there's no such thing as an essential carb. Carbs and fats are really not found in the same food other than the mammal's milk. So the idea that we would have had a balanced plate, so to speak, is really a modern invention. It's like I can see going back to the caveman, they get a big old steak because they killed an animal and they're eating it. And they're like, oh, what about my carbs? You didn't make any, uh, you didn't get any fruit or you didn't get any greens mixed beforehand. You didn't get any rice. Like they wouldn't think like that. They would just eat what they had, you know, and the more likely scenario would have been that there would have been periods of high fat, high protein diets most of the year and high protein, high carb diets on occasion. And that's how it would have you know, broken up. But won't eating a bunch of meat give me cancer? I'm sure you've heard this one before. And for a claim as ubiquitous as this, you'd assume that there's a landslide of positively correlating studies to support it. Strangely, there aren't. At best, there are some observational studies that might point to a possible relationship between meat consumption and increased risk of cancer. But these all suffer from the same bias error that they basically, the problem is they group a lot of types of meats together. Essentially, these surveys ask these broad questions like, in the last year, how many times each week did you eat meat? Of course, like I can't even remember what I ate last week alone, like and let alone last year. And I eat the same thing every day. So, you know, if I can't remember that, then like there's no way you're gonna look back and think about last year. But more specifically, there's no differentiation between that cheap Big Mac you had with a soda and some fries and ice cream from that grass fed grass finished ribeye steak. You can hopefully see the problem here, that you are comparing apples and oranges and really calling them all apples when they're really not the same thing. Now, if we look at the population data, you'd expect to see a clear distinction between countries who eat a lot of meat and those who don't, uh, especially if it's such a, a foregone conclusion that eating meat causes cancer. Now, again, this is not the case. So individuals in Hong Kong, for example, um, who eat the most meat per capita than anywhere else have actually the longest lifespan or life expectancy. And India, on the other hand, eats the second lowest level of meat per capita and ranks in the bottom 40% of life expectancy. And I know, I know, I know before you say it, this is just one data point, but you can't draw a conclusion. It still says something, though, because you would think that if some eating meat is so indictable in terms of its health consequences, then why would you see people that eat the most of it have the longest lifespan? Now, you might be saying, well, what about the blue zones? Well, oh, the blue zones. These, they're the magical places where people live longer than average. And put simply, this theory is, is basically a cherry-picked and misleading representation of the reality that the choices you make in life impact how long you live. And this is not unlike Ansel Keys' seven-country study where he basically pulled data from hand-picked countries like Greece and uh, didn't happen to mention that he pulled data when they were observing lint, where they don't eat a lot of meat, and basically made this attempt to support his claim that the cholesterol consumption led to cardiovascular disease. And the problem with this is he had a, a he had an assumption, and he had a hypothesis in the front end that he just basically created a study to support. And his point was that countries that eat a lot of meat had heart disease, and uh, eat a lot of cholesterol had heart disease, and countries that didn't didn't. And unfortunately, it just was a narrative constructed that led to a lot of harm and problems and kind of a problem or damage to the narrative over time. 
And this blue zone fallacy tries to kind of boil longevity down to simply not eating meat. Basically says, that, look at all these places. The one thing they have in common is they don't eat meat or they eat very little amounts of meat. But if you actually look at these locations, they all eat meat. More importantly, they all have a strong emphasis on daily life or daily activity, community, making better lifestyle choices like not smoking or drinking alcohol. It all makes a difference. And so this is the point is that... <laughs> What you do with your life makes a difference. And yes, these blue zones, they're eating and doing all these things that are positively correlated to living longer, but it's its far too much of a simplification to say, oh, it's just because they don't eat a lot of meat. And the fact is that they actually leave out several of these quote-unquote blue zones where people live far longer than the average of the places around them that eat a lot of meat. And you, you see how this becomes this kind of narrative. And the problem is when you have a narrative that you're trying to use to support a hypothesis that generally uh, starts to get fudged around the corners. The reality is that there are no randomized double-blind trials that show any correlation between meat consumption and cancer. And the best that the World Health Organization can come up with is a weak positive, a weak positive correlation that doesn't even meet their own criteria for being statistically significant. And while I'm not advocating you go out and eat a bunch of cheap and processed meats like cold cuts, you might find it interesting to know that the vegetables and fruits, so I should preface it by saying that cold cuts and processed foods generally thought to be bad because they have a lot of nitrates and nitrites. But you might find it interesting to know that vegetables and fruits actually have a much higher level of nitrites than processed meats do, like multiple times over. And while this, while these naturally occur in the plants you eat, somehow they just start causing cancer when added to meat. Like Obviously, the jury is still out on this whole section, right? It's simply pointing to the fact that you know, this is a slam dunk case that meat and cancer, meat causes cancer. It's just, it's not, it's not so clear. And so whenever you hear people say that, more often than not, actually almost entirely, they're just making conjectures based off of things they've heard and they haven't really looked at the studies because the studies do not support this. And the issue with this claim is the same with all other nutritional claims. It's just almost impossible to truly know. Like first, everybody responds differently to food based off of their genetics and epigenetics, which are the expression of your genes based off your lifestyle choices. Second, no one eats food in isolation. There's always a mixture of different red herrings that can cause problems. Remember the Big Mac with the fries cooked in vegetable oils and a soda and an ice cream sundae for dessert? Now, which of these is the actual problem again? Or is it all of them together? And I don't know. And no one can know because we don't eat food in isolation. We're not robots. We're not mice living in a, a test lab. And finally, the studies we do have use absolute lifespan as the metric for success. But you and I both know that living to 100 isn't a great thing if you spent the last 20 years of your life in a wheelchair suffering from a dementia. A much better option to test for would be a health span, which is basically how long you have active use of your body and your brain and your capacities. And unfortunately, the United States is the only, it's one of three developed countries or major nations that have gone down both times in the last 10 years that's been studied worldwide, their, their average health span. And the other two countries have been suffering from uh, worldwide famine and civil war. So something's going on in the United States that we're the only one that's going down both times we've been studied in terms of health span. So... It's tough because people say, oh, well, this, you know, they're living longer. It's like, I don't necessarily want to live in 95 if I'm stuck in a wheelchair. And so that's got to make sure that what you're looking at, what we are studying is actually making things that are enviable and things we want to work on. But I'll leave you in this section with the piece that I find most compelling. If we evolved over millions of years eating meat as our primary energy source, cooking it and charring it over fire for a significant portion of that time, how then does that same food just become inherently bad for us and, and become the cause of our downfall? 
And you might say that, well, humans didn't live as long back then, so we're just eating, living longer now that the food we're eating is probably not good in the long term as a short-term gain and long-term sacrifice. But no, humans didn't have significantly shorter, shortened lifespan, quote-unquote, back in the day. The data, that whole data set is severely skewed by infant mortality and death during childbirth that pulls the average lifespan down. And I'm fairly certain that the invention of the C-section and hand-washing has little to do with what these people were eating. Unless, of course, you want to thank fat and meat for expanding the human brain capacity so we could use technology and tools. But, you know, it, it does not make any sense that the thing we evolved for millions of years with is now a problem. That doesn't, that doesn't quite fit, right? But isn't, meat, eat, isn't eating meat bad for the environment? Now, this is obviously a big topic. And... This gets thrown out once you get a few times back, and people have heard this before, and it's said so many times, like, well, meat is the single biggest problem for our environment, that it's become a quote-unquote uh, gospel or truth. But it couldn't be further from the case. And unfortunately, I, I spent some time thinking about why do people, why are they so dead set on trying to get other people to stop eating meat? And in reality, and I'm not going to make a broad generalization, but I'm going to, most people who have a plant-based bent don't think it's ethical to kill animals. And that's totally fine if that's what you want to do. Like, that's totally fine if you make that decision for yourself. But in order to get other people to care about it, they then, you know, no one else wants to share your ethical desires, so they have to say, well, it's not healthy. And so they push, it's not healthy. It's going to make you give you cancer. It's going to cause a heart attack. It's going to cause bad cholesterol. So they push this over and over and over again, and it just doesn't hold up. So then they say, well, it's bad for the environment. It's causing a lot of global, like, cows release methane gas, and it's causing global, uh, global house greenhouse gas release and it's causing global warming and the problem is it's not it, 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 you you have to be able to look at the studies and when you look at this stuff and you actually look at how these things function in terms of and, and i'll break this down for you in a second in terms of how global warming is happening and how much of a contribution uh, raising animal animal husbandry and farming animals actually has you realize it's it's not this um canary in the coal mine so to speak in terms of this thing that's this horrible wrong that's going on we're destroying our country every time you have a hamburger it just doesn't work like that so obviously this is a, a big topic but the short answer is that bad farming practices so both confined animal feeding organizations CAFOs which we'll come back to in a second and monocrop agriculture are horrible for the environment at multiple levels so really bad farming and agriculture is horrible for the environment so do be clear, CAFO, so these combined animal feeding operations, that's where they like, you know, they, the historical thing, the quintessential thing where you see where they just shove all these animals into this closed off place, they don't feed them, they give them much antibiotics, or they give them some crappy uh, grain or, or food that they're not able to really eat, the animals get fat, they get sick, and they get treated and, and abused. It's a horrible, horrible, it's a scourge on our existence as people who have the ability to shepherd animals. It is truly a scourge on our existence. So CAFOs are inexcusable. Like the mistreatment of animals, they're shoved in these tiny spaces, and it's it's not it's not okay. Um, and the problem is that it actually leads to a greater environmental tax because it leads to excessive rates of sick animals that need more antibiotics. They could run through, put in the water, and they could run off. And there's a lot of toxic waste from the amount of uh, urine and, uh, and and poop that these animals make, and they're not healthy. Therefore, it's not healthy uh, waste. But that doesn't mean so the problem is you have to be able to see that as one thing, and then realize that that does not mean that animal husbandry, which is basically the practice of living and, and having animals that service you in a sense, like they pull plows and do stuff like that, and 
farming animals. So just because CAFOs are a scourge in our existence, it doesn't make animal husbandry or farming animals for food bad in general as a practice. Now, if I juxtapose massive year-round monocrop agriculture practices for corn and soy and wheat, so these they deforest or they cut down these massive plots of land and they just plant the same food over and over and over and over and over again, that's that monocrop. So it's one crop over and over and over all the time. And they spray a bunch of Roundup and they spray a bunch of pesticides on it. It becomes like it completely uh, destroys the microbial diversity. It kills millions of small animals that were living there. It destroys the environmental capacity of that place and it, de- it strips the soil of its nutrients. If I juxtapose that with your local farmer that brings in season organic produce to the market, you know, that changes based off of what's available and they shift the crops around and they have some animals that come in and, and feed and keep the soil rich and healthy. You'd obviously know the difference. Now, this is no different between the distinction between CAFOs, which are the assembly, the quintessential comparison to monocrop agriculture, and well-raised grass-finished beef, or pastured chicken and pigs for that matter. Now, what gets thrown away as an oversimplification, like, so, quote-unquote, eating meat is bad for the environment, actually misses a crucial point. You cannot have healthy soil without animals. Period. You have to have animals for healthy soil. They are part of the carbon cycle. Now, animals get blamed for releasing carbon into the atmosphere through methane gas as a byproduct of their waste. Now, obviously, they burp and fart and stuff like that, right? As we all do, most of us. So methane gas, the problem with that is it's about 30 times warmer than carbon dioxide. So this leads people to worry about wherever sources of methane are being released. Now... But the fear-mongering about this misses two big things. First, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, reports that beef production accounts for less than 2% of total greenhouse, U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. Less than 2%. Compare that to the amount of airplanes that we fly across the country to have these little lunch meetings for business that could be done on Zoom. Or the amount of cars in the petrochemical industry, industry we're working on. Or the plastics we use every day. Like, it's, it's nothing. And second, cows are actually capable of putting carbon back into the soil when raised properly. Now, somehow, these grazing herbivores that numbered in the millions, literally uh, upwards of billions of these grazing herbivores, so the elk and bison and um, I guess the ancestors to cows, I don't know exactly what you call them, uh, for hundreds of thousands of years without causing acute global warming. So all of these, these grazing herbivores were eating and pooping and farting and, and releasing methane. And they didn't cause global warming. But now, all of a sudden, it's their fault. It couldn't possibly be the petrochemical industry, of course. It couldn't possibly be all the times, you know, the, the crazy amount of waste and, and gasoline and carbon we're releasing every day through our, basically, our existence. No, it couldn't be that. It has to be the cows, right? Now, if, you, if you're really so concerned about the environment, go ride a bike to work. Stop drinking out of plastic water bottles and cancel the destination vacation that requires a six-hour flight. You see, like, you see, it's not as simple of a solution as the mainstream narrative would lead you to believe. Oh, go to stop eating curls. It, like, the problem with this reductionist thinking is that it paints an incomplete narrative by juxtaposing meat production as bad and vegetable production as good. But here's the thing. If you don't have animals to eat, you inevitably end up consuming more grains and vegetables. Now... I know some of you that may be like, well, yeah, that's the point. Like, the problem is that these are low-calorie foods requiring a lot of specific space for farming, synthetic fertilizers, and pesticides to protect the crops, and clean water for irrigation. So fun fact, over 70% of the world's freshwater withdrawal goes towards crops. 
And the most of that goes towards these monocrop, the soy and the corn and all these basically things you use to make fake food. And because they don't have a lot of calories, you have to make more of them. Because you need more of them, you have to deforest more areas. And you got to remember, to support the growing population, even more forests would need to be cut down to pave the way for monocrop farmland. Since only 30% of the world's surface is arable, meaning that it could be farmland or farmable. Now, you got to remember that of that, about a third of that is being continually degraded by the top. The topsoil is losing its nutrients over years and years of monocropping. Like we only have a few decades of harvestable soil left. It's really not good. And you, like, if you're looking at this stuff, you're thinking, okay, well, we don't need to eat meat. It's like, well, if you actually look at the amount of calories you were given from a full cow or a pig or chicken that is, that is killed, raised properly and killed, it's a tremendous amount, and that goes a long way. But you, to get that same amount of calories, you would need acres of, of corn and soy. And like, we just don't have the space. And if you go and look at how much of the rainforest is being cut down to make space for monocrop things, which are all going towards vegetable and seed oil. So you're looking at soybean, corn, vegetable, and like these baseline. If you go, uh, you look up where the oils are coming from, these single grains that are be cutting down, like that's what they're being used for. Now, compare that to the fact that cattle are raised on non-arable land, which land that isn't able to be farmed in the first place, so it's just sitting there. They use green water, which is 93 to 98% of the water they consume is green water, which is natural rainfall or non-potable water that's already on the ground. So the, you will... You'll hear this thing where like, oh, you know, it takes like, you know, some hundreds of thousands of gallons to get one pound of meat to, to market. What they don't ever tell you is that that's green water. It falls on the, from the sky onto the ground. It's not fresh water. And guess what? You need fresh water to be put onto crops. And you need pesticides. And you need synthetic uh, fertilizers. It's, it, is, it, is, it gets me frustrated because it is asinine, the fact that people don't, um, whatever. You know, it's not people. It's just like that we were pushing these common narratives and... I'm going to get to the reason why this is a problem in a second. Like, cattle and livestock are essential for undoing the desertification of otherwise ruined landscapes. So what happens is the relationship between these large herbivores is so because they are herbivores and they don't have a lot of speed, they can't get away from predators, they group together in these large herds. Now, as they go, they graze on grass, they trample the dead grass, they dung, so they poop, and then they urinate all over this place. So they kind of like smash everything down, mix it up, and they basically till the soil. Because what happens is when grass dies, it needs to be removed in a sense. Like grass, you know, it's not a perennial, it basically goes through seasons, so grass dies. And in this place where grass, if grass dies and it doesn't have this relationship where the cows are trampling down and kind of getting it to expedite its decomposition, it basically dries out and then becomes the uh, basic foundation for desertification. So it dries out, the soil underneath isn't able to reclaim the nutrients, and then it grass dries away, and then over time, it becomes a thinner and thinner. So the, the soil isn't able to produce the next year's grass, and then that be, leads to a desertification. And then what happens is when these places where it doesn't rain a lot, you know, it becomes a flood or drought. So it's one or the other. And even if it just rains a little bit in these places where it's desertified, whether it's just desert, it just becomes flooding. And that makes it worse because it ships more and more topsoil. But these large herds that are walking around grazing, trampling the dead grass, pooping, and urinating, they're kind of like tilling all of this together. And then once that's, they've done that, they move to the next part. They move to the next part. So they're constantly moving. And these places of millions, if not billions, of these animals are doing this is what creates healthy grassland. Now, without this, 
we don't have the capacity to maintain healthy topsoil, and we don't have the capacity to keep these grass species alive. You can go look up using livestock for de or re, I guess it's de desertification, um, undoing desertification. I forget the exact term of it, but like, the reality is that without this process, topsoil loses nutrients, grasslands dry up, and desertification happens. And the most frustrating part is that none of this is necessary. Most animals are raised on grassland for the first 60 to 70% of their life before being sent to a CAFO that can confine animal feeding organ op operation. Now, the thing is, we have the space, we have the infrastructure to make this simple switch to the sustainable regenerative agriculture practice that would quite literally save the planet. And I don't say that as hyperbole. It would literally save the planet because when we start to reclaim the non-arable grasslands that become desertified and they start to have more grass, guess what? We're putting more carbon back into the ground because that's what cows do. They eat it. They poop it out. It goes back into the ground as part of the cycle. So that's one thing you got to think about is even though they are releasing methane gas, it's it's in the cycle now without these animals out there and, we, and i'm losing my I'm losing my patience here i should pull back <laughs> um we have the space but the reality is that it's not it's not that they'll make the argument of we don't have enough space we don't have enough opportunity for it. we do we have all these cows that are out there and the problem is that people just want cheap food and large monopolies respond to the almighty dollar and you can't have the dollar menu at mcdonald's without these practices so what's worse is that these large meat producing companies buy out time at the slaughterhouses to prevent smaller farms from being able to process their meat now to put this into perspective 85 percent of all meat production in the united states comes from just four companies and now what you want to think about is over the last 50 years in response to heightened regulation that just favors these large companies, there used to be about 10,000 slaughterhouses around the country. And now there's just over 1,000. So even as demand for free-range meats that are sustainably raised, that are you know, higher quality, ethically harvested, even as that's rising consistently, the availability of slaughterhouses is dropping. That's almost 90% of a loss in the last 50 years. And what they've done is they basically said that you can't have a slaughterhouse unless there's a USDA uh, a representative at every single one, which makes it very hard to have a small place. And so you have to, you end up just kind of consolidating and putting all these people into these one places. And then they say, well, you can't ship outside of the state if you don't go and have your place processed at one of these places at one of these. Uh, slaughterhouses. So if you're a local farmer, guess what? You may have to drive three, four, five, six hours to get to the local place if you want your farmers to be able to sell larger. And guess what? That becomes a uh, problem. You can't get there. And a lot of these places, because they're so big, they don't care about how the quality of how these animals are being treated. They're just in there just doing it as long as it's clean and has the bacteria. That's all they're looking at. And so it becomes prohibitive for the people who care about their animals they can't get these animals. They can't scale up their organization. And again, it's not that we don't have enough space. It's not that we don't have enough animals. It's not that we don't have enough opportunity and uh, infrastructure for it. It's that the money is pushing into this consolidation and the big monopolistic conglomerates are taking advantage of it. And now what happens is this drives up the, uh, the price of high-quality meats and it puts a strain on the already low profits of those doing it right. Now, as a result, we see a further shift toward this unsustainable CAFO practices that harm the environment and are ethically untenable, which drives the public discourse into this black and white paradigm of eating meat is bad. Now, what gets lost in the middle is that eating animals is what made us human and that there is no way for a reversal of climate change without raising livestock. Now, d d you see what's happening is that when good farmers that have the ability to do this can't get their 
they can't continue to scale up and get their meat out to people who want that and have a demand for that, then the price gets higher and more expensive. And then that outprices what people could choose. And so then guess what? People who can't afford that, the people that are on the lower lower income scale of things, all they can afford is the dollar McDonald's. And then all they can afford is the cheap $2 pound of ground beef at the store. And guess what? If that's what's being bought, then these companies get more money. And they get more money. They get more sway in the regulation. And you know what the craziest thing is? The people that are that are preventing the change in, in uh, some of these laws from a uh, con- congressional level of Capitol Hill are the meat lobbies. They're the people that represent these large companies. They're stopping smaller companies, smaller farms from being able to get their their meat out. It it's, it drives me insane because they don't realize is that in order to go and chase the money and get the next dollar and make it a little bit cheaper and continue to have this asinine amount of like here's a Big Mac for $2. It didn't cost $2. And by getting that, people like they just shut their mind off like oh, I'm going to go eat this. It's like no, you can't you can't support that. And now, but the problem is that this drives in this wedge of like, okay, people are like, well, I'm going to have my meat. I'm going to do this too. And they want to go and do that, right? Or they can't afford anything else. And then everyone else is like, what are we doing? This is, this is horrible because KFOs are a scourge on our environment and our, just our ability to exist as humans that have the ability to shepherd over animals. And the problem is, is that it's going to go one way or the other, where it's either going to continue to go this way until it gets so bad that they shut it down. And then guess what? The people are like, well, we can't eat meat. We're going to have, you know, factory farmed, uh, sorry, what do you call it? Um, fake alternative meat and fake, uh, what do you call it? Artificial hamburgers and things that like uh, can't be impossible burgers and stuff like that, which is only supporting more monocrop agriculture, which is only deforesting and only destroying our soil. And we are going to end up making it illegal to have cows and to eat meat. And guess what? Without that, you cannot reverse climate change. And it's just, it's completely missed. And it just, it pisses me off. It just really pisses me off, in case you couldn't tell. So if you're interested in this topic, I highly, highly encourage you to read The Sacred Cow by Diana Rogers and Rob Wolf. They do an amazing job of walking through this. And it's potentially, this this conversation about how we manage meat, and in the case for better meat, not just meat at all, like obviously we need this. And it's having less animals and less livestock are not the pro- is not the answer. It's how can we do this in a way that's actually sustainable and better? It is potentially one of the most important discussions we can have today. With so much on the line and runaway climate change becoming an ever-growing possibility, like we can't ignore this. And though I could go on for pages and hours, suffice it to say that eating meat isn't bad for the client. In fact, sourcing your meat from local farmers who are doing it right might just be one of the absolute best things you can do for the environment. Now, if you disagree, we can fight about it. Shoot me a message or an email. We'll talk. Uh, it's contact at gramtuttle.com. And we'll talk, and I'll send you resources. But this is so vitally important that I really wish more people would understand that, which is why I'm sitting here yelling at you. So let's finish this up with something a little bit more straightforward. A lot of times people hear this and say, well, you're, so you're saying I can get everything I need from animal foods. Like, well, what about calcium and minerals and other vitamins? So you know, this gets into a little bit of supplements. And again, I'll, I'll touch on this in the supplement episode at some point. But, you know, you really can get everything from an animal-based diet. I mean, that's that's the reality of it. I've been doing it for eight months. People are doing it forever. And it's. I will say, obviously, you can get everything you need to do from a vegetarian or vegan diet, kind of. You have to supplement. You have to start to do some of that stuff. With animals, 
the food, the nutrients you need are all contained within the whole unit of the animal. It's an amazing thing. And I'll put it this way. Supplements are simply components of the food we eat that provide specific quantities of the nutrients required for health. Now, much of the supplement industry advertises this untruth that supplements will somehow elevate your capacity and performance. They literally say like, oh, vitamin A. It's like they, they advertise these basic supplements like they're drugs. They're going to get you high and get you on the you know elite level performance. Unfortunately, it just doesn't work like that. Now, while certain drugs can provide this type of high, they always come at a cost and they're generally illegal. Well, it depends on the sport. Like if you play sport, the stuff that really works for sports is illegal or they just haven't found out about it yet. But it always comes at a cost. There's no, you know, you can't have your, you know, no free lunch. You, you don't get your cooking needed too or whatever. You can't have your vegan cooking needed too. Um, so, you know, supplements are really only necessary when your diet and lifestyle isn't cutting it. And so the obvious fix to the enlightened mind would be to change what you eat. But spoiler alert, pasta, Pop-Tarts, and cookies don't have much in the way of vitamins and minerals. But if you're absolutely not willing to make changes, then supplements can help. And by the way, if you've listened this long at seven series and you're not willing to make changes, I don't, I don't know. Maybe you just like the sound of my voice, but I would be shocked. I would be shocked. Uh, please let me know what you find interesting that isn't compelling to make a change in your diet at this point. Um, so what what supplements won't do is offset that dis this health and disease brought on by these fake foods. But yes. You absolutely can get all the nutrients you need from an entirely animal-based diet. You just have to expand your horizon. And that means some bone broth, or some organ meats, and some high-quality bone-in meats from time to time, some ground beef and things like that. Now remember, the point of food is threefold. It's a vehicle for nutrients, a vehicle for calories, and to some extent some enjoyment and happiness and social bonding and stuff like that. And if what you're eating isn't meeting your nutrient needs, then you'd be best served by making a change. And if nothing else sticks out to you after making it this far in a series, what you eat determines how you look, feel, and live. I'll say that again. What you eat determines how you look, feel, and live. Odds are that if it's not providing a net positive, if the foods you're eating aren't generally benefiting you, it's likely negatively impacting your health, your body composition, and your longevity. Now, again, I'm not dogmatic about what you eat. It's your life. I don't really care. And fruits and vegetables can be a totally great supplement as well. At the end of the day, it comes back to the simple guideline, which I said at the very beginning, of eating 90% of your calories from meat, fruit, and some vegetables. If you do that, you're good. If you want a supplement on top of that, to be safe, go for it. But understand that the sourcing of these supplements matter. And remember that there is a difference between plant nutrients and animal nutrients. Not all supplements are created or converted in the body equally. And as is usually the case, you get what you pay for. Now, while these are certainly, while there are certainly more topics that could, that could be discussed here, like the uh, ethics of eating animals, for example, these are really the main sticking points that can be objectively obsessed. Um, and maybe one day, you know, if there's interest, I'll cycle back around to a more philosophical discussion of the intangible topics of ethics. But I digress. Maybe that'll be a future time. I'm sure you're tired of me today. I, I expect you to disagree at some point, maybe, uh, to fact check me and to make your own decisions. And my hope is that you can use this information in my years of experience as a guidepost on your path to achieving your best health and capacity. And with that, we have concluded the seven-part nutrition crash course. We have made it all the way through. We have made a long journey about the emotional drivers that are throwing off your diet. Um, I don't know what part, part two is nutrition 101, the basics of what you can eat. We talked about carbs. We talked about fat, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease, and heart attacks, and cholesterol, and, and the gut health, and healthy food. And now today we talked about what to eat. So thank you so much for listening. I appreciate this. If you are interested in digging deep a little bit more, 
This is the basis of my book, The Animal-Based Athlete. I would absolutely love it if you'd support me and go purchase that because it's going to have a full meal plan and things like that in there as well. But just listening to this is, is, is more than enough. You really are just the best and it's peachy and I love it. If you would do me the, the, the kindest of favors and subscribe and do a review, just say that I just, I'm just the cutest guy ever. That would be perfect. Just something to bolster my, my confidence would be great. Um, really helps the podcast. Share this with someone who, you know, is trying to figure out their diet and we'll, we'll keep talking. And again, if you have any questions on your diet, you want to work on this stuff or you have any, uh, you know, things that you want to clear up or disagree or yell at me about, email me, contact at gramtuttle.com and we'll talk. Again, thank you so much. I will talk to you soon. Appreciate you. Bye. Thank you.